I'm Trudy Morgan Cole, and you're listening to Shelf Esteem, the podcast where I talk to interesting people about the books that they find interesting. And as I promised you, I think it was last month, uh, this month's edition of the podcast is another book swap with me and my favorite co-host, Emma Cole, my daughter. Uh, Emma Cole is a writer and an English major at Acadia University and a designer and seamstress and all-around cool person who does a lot of neat stuff. She reads books, I read books, and every so often we will recommend a book to each other and talk about them. And for this episode, uh, at the end of summer 2022, we decided to talk about Beach Reads. That is, two books that we had enjoyed reading over the summer, and also the larger concept of what constitutes a beach read. So we jumped right in, uh, introducing you to the two books that we're going to talk about. So usually when we do this, there's some kind of common theme or thread mm-hmm. between the novels, even if it's a very loose and tenuous mm-hmm. one. I'm not sure there really is this time. Other than times in our lives that we read these books. That's true, And yes. maybe maybe we'll find a thread along the way. Maybe we will find a thread along the way, yes. I think they do tap into some themes that we have talked about in previous mm-hmm. book swaps mm-hmm. that I'd like to bring up again. So the one that I read on your recommendation was Everyone in This Room Will Someday Be Dead by Emily Austin. Mm-hmm. Great title. Yes, absolutely. And I read uh, The Summer Place by Jennifer Weiner. Which is the second appearance of Jennifer Weiner on a book Yes, slot. we did. I guess it was her book right before this. No, maybe? there's no. actually one in between. Oh, okay. Because it's a, it's a very loose trilogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Big Summer can't remember the second. I think the second one is called That Summer. Mm. And then this one, The Summer Place. And the only linking element among them as a trilogy is the location, the, location, the yeah. summer place. Um, and there's a few characters who are major characters in one book who are minor characters in another because they're connected to the summer place. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, that's um, uh, these are the two books, and they are very, very different. Yes. Um, but we both read them... In the summer. Yes, they were summery reads. I, although I originally saw um, Everyone in This Room Will Someday Be Dead on the bookshelves of chapters, like a few months ago. Uh-huh. And I feel very pleased with myself because I saw it and I thought, ooh, that looks like an interesting read. And I read the back cover and I thought, ooh, that seems interesting. But I didn't pick it up then because I had other books that were more pressing. And then later I saw a bunch of to-do about people were saying this was a good book. And mm-hmm. I thought I thought of buying it before I knew it was a good book. <laughs> before you heard the buzz. Before I heard that book. it was cool, I questioned that maybe it was cool. <laughs> um, uh, and then I, I did pick it up. I, I did pick it up after I heard other people talking about it. And I said, oh, yeah, I meant to come back to that one. Um, and I read it pretty quickly and then passed it on to you because I thought you would enjoy mm-hmm. it as well. And I did. And I also read it very quickly. I probably read it in just a couple of days. Yeah. A lot well, of that a was short having book. time. It's a shorter one. It's yeah. definitely shorter than um, The Summer Place. The Summer Place is definitely a longer book. Yeah. Um, and as we've discussed here before, I picked up The Summer Place because I like Jennifer Weiner. I've read mm-hmm. almost all of her books. I find them, even though I think this is a problematic concept, I do find them the perfect beach read or the perfect mm-hmm. summer mm-hmm. read. Um, even though I often read them in winter. But this one, because of when it came out, I did read yeah. it in the summer. And it does say on the front, the undisputed boss of the beach read. Which I think is, I mean, I think Jennifer Weiner both embraces and pushes back against that, uh, uh, against being designated the boss of the beach read. Because mm-hmm. she seems to have, and this is one of the things that was interesting to me in thinking about these two books, is that Jennifer Weiner seems to have a thing about wanting to be taken more seriously as a literary writer, mm. and yet she is undisputably one of the most 
popular popular fiction writers in North America today. Yeah, well, beach read in itself is an interesting classification. It is. Because, I mean, like any genre, but I think especially like beach read, it's it feels like we've come to this consensus, but it doesn't actually describe what individual people look for in a beach read. Yeah, exactly. Because different people like to read different things on different beaches. That is true. Yeah. yeah you, 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 your beach read might not be mine. Yeah. So how would you define the beach read genre for yourself and then also what you think the New York Times is referring to when they say a beach read? Okay. Uh, for me, a beach read should be a book that I can really get into and uh, get really absorbed in and read generally fairly quickly. Um, I've said this before, but it's ideal for me if a beach read is a paperback, simply because mm -hmm. I do a lot of my reading on an e-reader. Yeah. But if I'm going to be wearing a swimsuit and generally by the pond rather than on a beach, for me, a paperback often works better mm -hmm. for that. Standalone book or can part of a series be a beach mm -hmm. read? Can part of a series? Well, the whole series would have to be a beach read. And mm -hmm. I think I have had like summers where I spent the whole summer reading through a series. Um, but a standalone is good because, you, yeah, you don't have to have any previous knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't necessarily have to be super light to me. And I think that, that to you or to, to me, okay. to me, to me, from my beach read. Yeah. Uh, and that's where I think I would question, um, for me, everyone in this room will someday be dead was a perfect beach read. I'm not sure everybody would view it as yes. a perfect beach yeah, read. Yeah, because I also would consider that to be a beach read. But I think, as the New York Times refers to a beach read... There's like this inherent understanding that there's not going to be anything too heavy or disturbing in the book. Yes. Like it's yeah. something that's not going to ruin your mood not, on a yeah. day out at the beach. Exactly. It's not going to kill your buzz. And I do think, as I've said before, I think Jennifer Weiner does this really well of dealing with very, very actually serious and potentially dark topics, but always with a sort of a light touch and a sense that you will end up in an okay place. It's not going to yes. be one of those books that makes you want to slit your wrists at the end of yes. it. Yes, I think the ending of a beach read is very important to its beach readedness. Yes, yeah. There's kind of an implication if a book is called a beach read by some mainstream designator that it's going to have a happy and satisfying ending. Yes, is yeah, I think what so. I think is implied by that title. Yeah. Um, I do think also there is an element of sexism to it, as there is in a oh, lot yeah. of a lot of uh, talk around books. And this is something that I agree with Jennifer Weiner when she pushes back. I mean, we've stopped calling things chiclet, yeah. which I think is a big step. Mm -hmm. But beach read is kind of in that same. Even though men also read books on beaches. What? Yes, I have seen men what? at the beach reading books. No, maybe, maybe not as much as women do. But I mean, there is. There are types of commercial and genre fiction, some more aimed at women, some more aimed at men. But, I mean, there's women who like to read hardcore legal thrillers at the beach, mm -hmm. for example. And there's probably men who like to read, read Jennifer Weiner mm -hmm. at the beach, maybe. But they might not admit to it. <laughs> maybe. Um, we shouldn't get too much further before. We should give a little plot summary of each of these. Yes. So, The Summer Place is... Loosely inspired by or drawing upon Midsummer Night's Dream. Yes. And the idea that there are a lot of these couples, in this case related to this one family, there's a lot of couples that throughout the novel become uncoupled for one reason or another. The relationships are kind of strained, the dynamics are changing. It takes place during COVID, which is very mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah, or we'll come back uh, to that. Yeah, yeah. and um and uh yeah, it's about um this 
wedding that's going to happen in the family and how everyone's family and relationship dynamics are strained and tested because of all these changes happening in the family's yes. life. And it's, yeah, it's got this very, um, uh, couples being mismatched, um, and then, I guess, coming back to their rightful couples at the end of the novel, like, yes, like yeah. Midsummer Night's Dream does. Although, just like with Midsummer Night's Dream, the resolution of right couples being together is a little bit questionable. Yeah, and we'll we'll, we'll deal with that in a spoiler section. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's and I didn't realize till I got to the end of it or after reading something about it that it was loosely inspired by Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah. Very loosely. It's not one of those, you know, where every It's not character... a retelling. No. It's just that that it's a, got a vibe. A whole bunch of couples come together at a summer place during the summer for a big wedding and yes. wacky high. But even a lot of it happens before they actually that get to the true. place. That is true. I would say more than half of the novel is before they get to the yes, summer place. Yes, and then you get a lot of flashbacks and backtracking in people's stories. So yeah, yeah. not not a, a, a retelling of Midsummer Night's Dream, but inspired by yeah. you know, the ideas therein. Um, and the reason I suggested it to you uh, was because, uh, is, is it on the back cover or was it just in one of the blurbs I read about it or the, the flap? Oh, yes. When her 22-year-old stepdaughter announces her engagement to her pandemic boyfriend, Sarah Danhauser is shocked. And I thought you I, I thought of you immediately because you are my 22 year old mm-hmm. not step but daughter mm-hmm. um and you also have a pandemic he's boyfriend. just like a regular boyfriend <laughs> that you started dating during the pandemic though yes but i don't think he's a pandemic boyfriend in the sense that some people use that but okay how, sure. how do you think people use the term pandemic well i boyfriend? hear a lot of people talking about pandemic relationships pandemic boyfriends pandemic girlfriends in the sense of like you your relationship has been only under this very strange time. Like, mm. you've never gone out with them anywhere because everything's been in lockdown. Yeah. Whereas, I feel like, because of where we lived, Sean and I never really worried too much about the, yeah. like, we could still go out on dates other places, like in public. And also, for a lot of things, I think people's pandemic relationships were pandemic situations forced people into moving in together yes. ahead of when they normally would have. Yeah. And that's certainly what happens in this novel, right? Yeah. Ruby brings Gabe home to live yeah. with her family. I think Pandemic Boyfriend implies that the timeline of your relationship has been significantly altered or changed to what it normally would have been because of the pandemic. Yes, yeah, and I technically true. don't think Sean and I would have acted any differently had the pandemic not that's been That's probably, probably true. And also, worth pointing out, you did not suddenly announce your engagement and throw yeah. me into shock at all. That has now, not however... Say- <laughs> However, I'll say, getting engaged just because you want someone else to tell you that it's a bad idea, not far off from how I do act sometimes. <laughs> okay, fair warning. Yeah, fair warning. Not, probably I wouldn't do it about an, enga- about an engagement, but announcing something that I know is a bad idea, but I need someone else to tell me it's a bad idea, not... Not not that big of a story. Which is pretty much what, what Ruby does in this yes, novel, yeah. right? She she kind of feels the relationship. Her family's too supportive. Yeah. And she needs she needs she, one of them to put her foot down. She needs someone to sit her down and yeah. say, This is a bad idea, this relationship. You're you're too immature, he's too immature, the relationship yeah. is too immature. She's basically looking for the relationship to be stopped by forces outside of herself. Because she doesn't want to stop it herself. Because she doesn't want to stop herself and she feels like this big leap would cause that. And then it doesn't. And yeah. it makes things even worse. And the main character of the novel is not actually 22 year old Ruby but her stepmother Sarah who has got a lot of her own stuff going on a lot of her own stuff a lot of her own stuff Um, and we'll come back to that but I want to talk also about the plot of um, everyone in this room will someday be dead and this very much pulls into that is it 
commercial or is it literary fiction thing because if I pick this book up with no prior knowledge I would be like this is a beach read this is a madcap bit of uh sort of I guess what they just another category I don't like but new adult fiction mm. for people who you know have just outgrown young adult fiction yeah. but aren't quite ready for real grown-up books yet and it sounds like it's supposed to be sort of silly and madcap and fun uh, even though the first line is Gilda can't stop thinking about death. But also her name is Gilda. It was a long time. Before because it's in first person, it was a long time to the book before I really wrestled with the fact that her name was Gilda. Well, it takes a long time for them to yeah, bring it up Yeah, that her name is Gilda. And I think it's supposed to be jarring. I think yes. that's an intentional... Do you think so? I think that's very I thought maybe I just hadn't noticed earlier No, that it's a long time before they say that her name is Gilda. And I think that's intentional because one of the things that this narrator wrestles with is this kind of depersonalization this like detached sense of self uh -huh. and so i think us hearing her name and for it to be a name we didn't expect yeah is like sort of recreating what the narrator feels like about her own sense of oh, self. that's interesting i would not have picked up on that i was just like gosh did i miss that her name was gilda <laughs> um but yeah she 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 responds to a flyer for free therapy at a local catholic church but father jeff assumes she's there for a job interview caught off guard and too embarrassed to correct him gilda is abruptly hired uh it's not the most obvious job she's a lesbian and an atheist um, and she must avoid really revealing the truth of her own mortifying existence. So it does have a f kind of wacky hijinks feel to it to me. Mm -hmm. But it actually is a... In, it is funny in darkly humorous yeah. ways. But it also feels to me like a fairly literary and serious exploration yeah, like of depression. Kind of as the main characters and the narrators' um, mental health declines, the narrative voice gets much more choppy unreliable like it's very yes. it's, it becomes a much more uh it becomes a much more jarring and choppy read to kind yes. of reflect that which i really appreciate but yeah it doesn't doesn't fit the, the i think when you expect a beach read it is like it's not going to play with the conventions of storytelling yes like yeah. the plot can be whatever the characters can be anything it can be creative in there but you don't really expect it to be like uh, like um the Summer Place or the other Jennifer yeah, Wine. Wine. Like, even if the stuff in the book was wild, the way it was told was always yes, very conventional. I mean, it has flashbacks, but it's still very clear. Yeah. You know, this is the flat narrative flow of the story. You're reading a flashback. Yeah. Now Whereas this and... one definitely plays with time and pacing. And voice and a voice. lot. Yes. And you know what I was thinking of? A way that this book is connected not to that summer, but to the other Jennifer Weiner. No, sorry, yeah. not that summer. That's Summer Place. Yeah. Um, but to the other Jennifer Weiner one, which was Big, Big Summer, summer. Um, is that... Turns into a murder mystery unexpectedly. That is true, yes. yes. Yeah, unexpected murder mystery. Um, in this one, I think unexpected and somewhat low-key murder mystery. Yes. Like, it's always kind of, in, it's kind of in the background. Yeah, it's, and it's one of those books where, like, it's kind of trucking along, and you get the vibe, and you think, is there going to be a main thing in this book, or is this a book that's just kind of a little slice-of-life observation thing, yeah, you know? Yeah. And then a sort of more clear through line plot line does emerge and i think it was done yes. pretty well yeah i thought that was done well too yeah. yes it was more than halfway through yeah it, and like, it established oh. the the characters in the setting established the inner life of the narrator and then from all that exposition a very natural and very interesting plot line emerged to carry you through to the end of the novel to like a place where it can stop satisfying yes like, yeah yeah now to tie this into a previous read we did talk about this offline as uh, similar to, or maybe not similar to, 
the first book we book swapped, which was My Year of Rest and Relaxation yes. by Tessa Moshvig. Yeah. Because this is also a very depressed young... Is she millennial or Gen Z? She's Gen Z. She's, is she? She's like 28 or 29. She's 28, 28 okay. Anyway, so a young woman in her 20s who is, for no super obvious reason, really, really depressed and unhappy. Yeah. But she seems to be more aware of it. Whereas, yes. like, the um, My Year of Rest and Relaxation narrator, who is nameless, so we will always have to refer to her in that clunky way, yeah. um, is, like, almost just, like, doesn't question her mental illness at all or question her view of life. She just kind of absorbs it as a personality trait and is a bit narcissistic about it, I think. Right. Whereas, like, Gilda is kind of the other end of she's like, I'm so detached and apathetic, apathetic, and I know that it's making me miserable. Yes, But yeah. is, like, at the same time wants to change it, but is powerless to change it because of the reasons she wants to change. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so definitely different kind of explorations of, of a similarly troubled narrator. Yes, similarly troubled narrator, similar um, literary style in some ways, yeah. I think. But um, I found this a much more enjoyable and readable book and I empathize yeah. with Gilda whereas I just wanted to kill the yeah, narrator hate, of the other book. There's no redeeming characters no. in my year of rest and relaxation and in this one I felt bad for Gilda especially yes. and I in some ways sympathized or empathized with the other characters in the novel too. Yes, yeah, yeah. I think and also the thing with Gilda is she is not the kind of person whose depression has made her monstrously selfish and blind to everyone else. If no. anything, she's too em empathetic. Yes. She cares she's so constantly worried about... About other people. And it, yeah. part of the reason... I mean, part of it is just apathy, but she, part of the reason she can't get away from this ridiculous situation of mm -hmm. being the receptionist in a Catholic church yeah. when she's an atheist and a lesbian is that she... It's partly she doesn't have... You know, she needs the money. She's apathetic. But also, she gets fond of Father Jeff yeah. and even of the accountant Barney who is kind of ridiculous. And of the person she starts emailing with. Yes, yes. the friend of, of the of the dead previous receptionist. She feels sorry for all these yeah. people. She feels empathy. Like she wants nothing but to please people. Yes, yeah, yeah. but not just because because she's a people who she does genuinely care about and she's so concerned about her brother who is obviously yeah. also having a hard time. Her parents yeah. seem a little oblivious to the fact that both her both yeah. their kids are in really bad places and they're yeah. not doing much about it. Yeah, I mean, she definitely does care about people, but there's also kind of, like, she almost seems surprised at everything that happens to her. Like, clearly part of her, the way she interacts with the world is that she can't really make these connections between, yeah. like, cause and effect of things. Yes, yeah. Like, especially not just of things, but of people. Mm -hmm. Like, she doesn't seem to really get that if you treat a person a certain way, then they'll react differently to you or something. You know what I mean? Like, there's yeah. just a slight disconnect there between... Like, she has a girlfriend. For yeah. The, like, most of But she book. seems surprised that the girlfriend, like, keeps texting her. <laughs> and it's only quite late in the book that she looks back at, at their text text and realizes yeah. oh she's always texting me and yeah. i'm not responding to which her. i have to say that mo i really like that they did include that moment yeah where she at least had some sort of realization of oh i have been acting or not acting a certain way in this relationship and that her actions do have consequences yeah that her actions have consequences because i feel like i mean she's not going to solve all her mental health issues in one book that would no. be uh, very unrealistic that would be very unrealistic um, but the fact that she at least has some kind of recognition beyond her, the stuff she's already thinking about when we meet her yeah. in the novel, to me was the bit of character growth I was really looking for. Yeah, and I feel like, and this is not a huge spoiler, but 
by the end of the novel, she is making small steps towards yes, trying and I to think, get help. I think and, that and is be the better. point of the novel because towards the very end, I think it's like the second last chapter or something, it describes in very short step by step sentences like she gets up, takes a shower, puts on her clothes, makes food, washes the dishes, and it's like, yeah, sometimes a journey towards getting better is not big revelations. It's just going through your day step by step, doing little things Tiny to help steps. yourself. Yeah. 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 So I found the ending really satisfying in this. It wasn't unrealistically mm -hmm. rosy or mm -hmm. resolved, but it was hopeful. Yes. Gently hopeful. And I think when we're talking about things that are defined as like generic or beach read stuff and stuff that is literary, this idea of realism is, I think, mm -hmm. very important. And I'm not really sure in what ways it like that pendulum kind of swings or like where the where the classifications fall but the idea of of realism is definitely interesting because i feel like i feel like sometimes it's like literary genres they lean so into realism to as to become absurd you know like get really invested in nitty-gritty details and yes. you go is that important for me to know mm -hmm. um and then i feel like beach reads try to be fairly relatable as in these are things that could happen to people but there's still like this air of like very contrivedness yes, some, sometimes yeah, do you yeah. know what i mean oh yeah, yeah yeah absolutely yeah and i think there is with the summer place um the other it's book, like all these things could happen but all at once yeah it's they're like not a, all gonna happen in one like, family uh, all at once like one eighth of one of the plot lines would be a literary genre yes, novel if it yeah, was stretched yeah. out and done in painstaking detail. But, like, this kind of rom-com beach read is all these things are happening at once to keep your attention yes. and to like, keep stuff going. We just had a big family reunion with people coming from all over yeah. and hanging out in beautiful, warm summer places. And I don't know if anybody was getting up to any hijinks, but we would have noticed if as many different people were getting yes. up to hijinks. So, yeah, there's kind novel. of a suspension of disbelief yes, yeah. with novels like this that try to do realism but do a lot of realism. Mm -hmm. And then I feel like literary genres are, like, really about breaking down, magnifying, and stretching out one element of realism. The other book sense. that this reminded me of, which we have both read and had thoughts about, was Eva Crocker's All I Ask, yeah, which is a local novel. Again, a young girl in her 20s who is very sort of aimless and directionless yeah. in her And life. also kind of has a, shall we call it a periphery plot. Yes. And yeah. the, main, the main point of it is how the character experiences their mundane life. Yes. Yeah. Which I guess in that way is very similar to... Yeah, everyone's from Time to be dead. Yeah, it was. It, yeah, I think they're very similar genre-wise. I think all I asked leaned also very heavily into that, um, like what you call the nitty-gritty detail of yeah. literary fiction. Um, that one had a crime subplot too, with yeah. the seizure of her laptop. Yeah, but which then never went anywhere. Sorry, yeah. Eva, but I did, it didn't pay off. There was no, it, nothing happened. And I don't think she meant for it to pay off. But as a reader, I found that a little yeah. frustrating. I I, I liked some plot. I, I like a plot in a book. I liked the way in this one, and everyone in this room will someday be dead. Grace's death, and then turning out that Grace's death might have been a mysterious mm -hmm. and not just a natural death. Yeah. Um. It was. It felt at the beginning. It felt for the first half of the book. It felt like the seizure of the laptop. And all I ask that yeah. this is just background. It's a slightly mysterious yeah. thing that and happened, then, ooh. and then ooh. it did get developed. It kind of unravels it, a little bit. It didn't do the Jennifer Weiner thing of turning into a full blown murder mystery, but there was there was plot. It did. Yes. Yeah. And then of course the resolution to that plot line ties into 
the narrator's journey and yes. thoughts about mortality. It fits and, and very I, neatly. I think that's why I really like this book and I recommended it to you was mm-hmm. because it felt just like and it's all it almost seems like such basic good storytelling that I shouldn't be this excited about it. <laughs> but just that this main plot line was like and in a way that wasn't too heavy handed, it didn't beat you over the head with it, but it this main plot line, this hook of this kind of murder mystery of what happened to this previous receptionist, like so tied into the narrator's fixation on death in a way that was a reversal of what you thought it was going yes, to be. Yeah. And I just, I really loved the way it all tied together. I agree. It tied together very neatly. It, it was mm-hmm. a book that felt like a lot of very disjointed, disconnected things were happening. Yeah. But by then you were like, oh, this is actually, yeah. thematically, this comes yeah. together beautifully. Where it feels like, to me, the Jennifer Weiner novel, and a lot of novels I've read, so I'm not saying this is just a problem with Jennifer Weiner, is that... I don't know if it necessarily tied together in the end so much as it just ended at a point. It ended at a point. Do you know point. what I mean? Yeah. Like, I felt like all these things got kind of twisted around in very interesting ways. All the relationships changed. All these cool, like, plot points happened. But then it did just kind of end in a way that felt chronologically important rather than, like, narrative, thematically, thematically yeah. important. Yeah. yeah. I think there's an element to that. Yeah. that. The thing that I thought was really interesting, um, so two points. Um... One thing that I think the Jennifer Weiner thing, book and this whole trilogy of hers does really well that I was surprised this book didn't do, everyone in this room was happy did, is evoke a sense of place. Yeah. In all of these three Jennifer Weiner novels, two of which you've read, I, I've read all three, that beach house on Cape Cod and that whole community. Very well. Fl- you, super you strong. You get it, you feel it, you know what's going on. It's clearly based on places that she has yeah. known and been and loved. This book, I was shocked halfway through to discover or to realize that everyone in this room will someday be dead was by a Canadian writer. Mm. Because to me, it had the sense of one of those books that could be set in any town USA. Yeah. Like, there's a couple of little hints of it being a Canadian setting, but generally, Canadian writers are really good on sense of place, I think. Okay, I'm going to push back on that, too. And maybe I'm just pushing back on this because I like the book. I don't want you to say And I do like the book, too, but um, I didn't have a strong sense of place. Do you think that also ties into this disconnectedness that the narrator feels? Because given how well she wrote everything else, yeah, I have a hard have. time believing Emily Austin couldn't have brought in a sense of place more so. But would this be the narrator to convey a sense of place, given that it's so in her head, it's so first person? Maybe. Do you think there's a way that she still could have conveyed that Canadiana? Well, again, I'm going to go back to Eva Crocker's All I yeah. Ask, which is the same kind of sort of disconnected... Deep, somewhat depressed, rootless narrator, but she is so clearly in downtown St. John's That's and true. every corner. Yeah. Or for that matter, again, to go back to my year of rest and relaxation, very, very New York novel. Yeah. Even though she's having this breakdown, she's very clearly having it in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I think... And I don't think... Do they ever mention what Canadian city this is I don't in? think so. I mean, I just assume it's Toronto because I... Is the author from Toronto? But it's very... I even, you know what, and I could be completely wrong, I thought at one point it might have been Halifax, and I don't know why I thought that. Maybe that's just me making stuff up, because I'm sometimes (laughs) in Nova Scotia. But, um, yeah, no, I think you're right. I think if Eva Crocker can do it, Emily Austin could have done it. She could have Maybe she chose not to do it for a reason. I know, yeah, it may have been a deliberate choice. I'm just saying that sense of place is one of the things I really love in the novel. And I think that might be one of the things where, and I've experienced this in my own writing, if you, you... if you decide an element's not important and then you leave it ambiguous, it doesn't make for a very strong writing mm. because you need to know even more than you tell your audience, right? Yes. So yeah. even if 
it being in Toronto or being in Halifax or wherever is not important. You knowing that and it seeping through, not even in big ways, but into the writing will make it feel more grounded. Yeah. And people like you won't be wondering, where is this supposed to be? So it's basically, if it could, if you're, theory is oh it could happen anywhere it's happening nowhere yes yeah. that's the kind of writer theory behind it is that you should like oh it could be happening anytime it's yeah. happening no time then exactly. and it's not going to feel as grounded to your readers right. as it could be and that leads me into my second point about groundedness yeah. in time i have another thing to talk about location with Kim. okay let's talk about location first. do you think canadian authors are under an obligation to make it very clear that their books are set in canada <laughs> do you think that that's something they should be doing like, I don't think do, they're under do we have a responsibility? <laughs> I think particularly authors of literary fiction in Canada come out of a strong tradition of having a sense of place. And that's not to say that American or British authors or whatever don't also. But I think because Canadian fiction is always defining itself in opposition to American fiction, or not mm-hmm. in opposition, but having to call itself yeah. a separate thing, I think Canadian writers tend to get very invested in sense of place. And that's why I was surprised that Emily Austin didn't. Yeah. That it, I mean, to me, if this had as, again, I, I think it's Toronto, but it might, might be some generic in Ontario, small town, or and you thought it was Halifax. But if this was as much set in Toronto as my year in rest of, of rest and relaxation was set in New York, I would have liked it even more. Yeah. If there were little details that were yeah. Toronto or Halifax. Yeah. Or, and to be know. fair, maybe Emily Austin left it that way on purpose. Oh, yeah. Again, Who knows? Emily Austin, get at us, get in the comments, tell <laughs> us what was your intention. Tell us, yeah. Uh, but yeah, you know, it, I have I would have no hesitation recommending it. I'm just saying if there had been a strong sense of place, it would have kicked, even better. kicked it up yeah. a level for I, me. Okay, I yeah. get that. I've come around. I get it. <laughs> um, the sense of time. Mm-hmm. Summer Place is one of the first wave of pandemic novels. Yes, and um, I've thought it very interesting. Yes. I was pretty much immediately when the pandemic started, I thought, how's this going to affect the literary oh, world? Oh, everybody has been wondering <laughs> this and asking this question, and there have already been a few good, I think I read Louise Erdrich's The Sentence, which a lot of people would say is maybe the first great American pandemic novel, mm. but this is this is very clearly a pandemic novel, and it, yeah. It deals with a lot of the things that I think, you know, we all live through. People, you know, Mm -hmm. again, different places, different locations, different social classes. They have a huge New York brownstone to shelter in place in, which is nice. Mm -hmm. Um, But it, it, the, the center to me of this novel, even more so than Ruby and the Pandemic Boyfriend, is Sarah and Eli, their long, this longtime husband and wife, facing having been trapped in a house together, even a big New York brownstone, for months on end, getting on each other's nerves. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I thought that was really well rendered. Yeah. And then also some bad timing to do with the wedding and people from their past being brought up just exacerbates. Yes, yeah. To the the beach read levels, this this annoyance that they feel because of their COVID closeness. Yeah. Yeah, and I thought it, it, you know... There's a lot of aspects to what we've lived through over the past two years, and who knows how far into the future, but over, certainly over the particularly 2020 with the lockdowns and people sheltering in place and stuff. There's a lot of aspects to that that would be interesting to explore in very heavy literary fiction, but there's also a lot to explore in light beach reads, commercial yeah. fiction too, like the ways in which you discover that you're partner can be super annoying if you're not yes. both going out of the house to work every mm-hmm. day for example yeah i still remember the the i guess it went viral as a twitter thread during sort of spring 2020 the hard lockdowns the woman who tweeted uh, my, my husband's been um 
uh, been having Zoom work meetings that I've just, I have to come to come to the realization that I'm married to a let's circle back guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like, all those little I'm things. I'm all about being a team, being a united front, being very close to your partner, but also sometimes you don't need to know everything. <laughs> exactly, yeah. There can be a little bit of separation and yes, individuality yeah. there. And there is a lot of stuff in this novel that, you know, it's not the main plot, but it is... Just like the, the the Cape Cod Beach House is the setting, the pandemic is the time setting, mm-hmm. and it does impact. I mean, it impacts the whole Ruby and Gabe's accelerated courtship, yeah, and and a number of other things that happen in the novel. Yeah. That, but I think also a good balance of it could have happened any time. Oh, you know, yes, like yeah. it's not so reliant on the pandemic as a yeah. It's not just a pandemic no. novel, but it is a part of the backdrop and the yeah. setting. And when I read novels that have been written in the last few years and are also like not historical or futuristic mm-hmm. or fantasy but are set in the same time period, I'm now getting to start to question, is the author just going to ignore 2020? Well, that's the like thing, is, is when a big global event like that happens, or even a big national event, like it gives you the choice of, I can set it a few years ago and it will feel foreboding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of like intentionally, Otessa Moshfake does with my year of rest and relaxation. When you with hear it, ta- when yeah. you hear it takes place in two thousand, you go, ooh. Oh, in, yeah, in New, New York, York in two thousand, you go, ooh. Yes, yeah. Um. So anywhere in like the um like the play we oh no you didn't see it okay okay <laughs> I was thinking of a play I saw Ouch. I th- I'm sorry I thought you were with me at it but I was with someone else um that the Supper Club by Willow Keen okay uh, local playwright local play and it's this group of women who are who meet together regularly yeah. to have a meal together and it, it goes through their relationships and it's all very you know it could be said almost any time yeah. whatever and then at the very end they decide that they're going to go like to Cuba or somewhere on a trip together and they're like yeah here's to us in 2020 oh, <laughs> yeah, it's like anything said in like late 2019 is going to have this like foreboding yes, kind of yeah. thing you can set it in the present day and either ignore the pandemic and now it's parallel universe yeah, fantasy as if it had never happened as if it had never happened you can kind of do this like yeah parallel ignoring it you can make it about the pandemic or at least have the pandemic happen but that will I can understand why writers would want to avoid that because that feels like your writing is being controlled a little bit if you feel like mm-hmm. you have to mention something like that. Or you can set it in the future and then laugh about how good you thought everything was going to be in a couple years, but yes. actually everything gets much, much worse. <laughs> um, and I wonder if this happened with like the other big plagues because people have been writing novels people for a while. Was there a thing with like plagues before or big global pandemics where like authors branched off into pretending it wasn't there or incorporating it like how many years do has to go by because no one would write and here's where i reveal i know nothing about history like no one would write a historic play during like scarlet fever or the black plague and not include it because unless it was like a purposeful like really fictional historical fiction so, like, how many years has to go by before people can stop ignoring the pandemic in their writing? Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. The, the, I mean, the obvious interesting example is the um, 1918, 1919 influenza yes, epidemic. That's because what that's, I would have said. That's the one major plague that was set mm-hmm. in the era of modern realistic yeah. novels. And it actually, like, compared to the First World War, which happened right before it, and which people were writing about almost obsessively yeah. from the minute it happened, um, although I have seen people argue that the great 
First World War novels didn't start coming out till about 10 years later. But they had to process. Yeah, they had to process. There's not a lot of fiction of the time that really deals or treats mm-hmm. with or explores the, the, that pandemic. There's a few novels about it, but it's not written about the way you would expect when Is so it... many books were being written. Yeah, there was a little bit of we're going to ignore this huge thing because it's almost too big to deal with. Yeah. Um, when I, yeah, I was uh, saying before, when I read novels like um, a novel I've recommended, I don't think you've read, although you've read this person's other work, but I've recommended it on this podcast before, uh, Casey McQuiston's One Last Stop. Mm-hmm. Um, I had no trouble accepting that in that novel there was a New York subway car that was stuck in a time loop and there was a girl who'd been on it for 50 years and mm-hmm. that was or 40 fine. years. Yeah. That's, you know, that's, a, that's a novel I could accept. But the novel was very clearly set in 2019 in New York City. Mm. And I, as I saw that it was going to continue into the next year, I was like, oh, some stuff's going to go down. But it didn't. It just ignored it. It, pretend, it, it wrote about 2020 in New York City. But a fictional one where COVID didn't A fictional one happen. where there was no COVID and people were still going to bars and mm. hanging out and living a normal life. And that felt weird. Mm. And so that brings me back to everyone in this room will someday be dead, which was published in 2021. But just like it is set to me in a sort of generic place. It's kind of unstuck in time. Yeah, it's kind it's of like unstuck in time. It's like any time in the past 10 years, kind of. Right, but not the, definitely not the past two no. years because there's not a pandemic or going on. Or maybe the past two years, but we're pretending the pandemic yes, didn't happen. Yeah. Um, but in, su- yeah, in such an intensely realistic novel, it's, it's weird to think of it veering off into, you know, into to a parallel. So I was thinking of it as being like this is happening in maybe 2018, 2019, but then I was worried about how Gilda was going to cope with the pandemic. She would not be okay. She's, she's already so, so fragile. That would be such a huge setback. It would, Such yes. a huge setback for her if everybody started dying of an airborne disease. That's right. She's already so fragile. Oh, and of course, that thing. did happen to so many people with severe yeah. depression that it was hugely, you know, it was, it was a huge setback for them. So I did think about that, that it had this sort of rootlessness in time that I presumed it was happening before the pandemic, but then I, yeah, I was worried yeah. about how the character Emily Austin, get in the comments. Tell yeah. us when, <laughs> when is this set? We need to hear more. We need, we was Gilda okay? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but anyway, this was a lovely novel, and I really loved it. Now, I wanted to say some things about that summer that were going to be, or you get to get you to say some things that were going to be more obviously spoilery. Okay. Again, I'm calling it that summer. It's not that summer. It's That's called... A, the, the summer, summer place. place. You know what? That's on her. Those titles are too similar. But it's also because you're holding the book this way, and the back of the book is praise for the last novel, which I know I, I made that mistake. But the too. three of them do have very similar titles. So, yeah. uh, gonna give a spoiler warning here because we want to talk. I want to talk a bit about spoiler the end of the zone. summer. Welcome place. to the, the spoiler zone. zone. Well, that's we the first time I've ever sung on the podcast. I might have to edit that, edit that out. <laughs> um, so, talk about. The ending and resolutions of the summer okay. place. So, most of it's fine. Mm-hmm. Most of it's that, I mean, Sarah and Eli reconcile their differences, even though Eli should have just been talking about what was going on the whole time. They're back together. And Sarah does have a brief fling with an old lover. But yes, which discovers. she decides to keep secret forever. Yeah, so she's never going to talk about whatever, it. Whatever, whatever. And the couple that you could tell was kind of supposed to break up, which is Ruby and Gabe, her pandemic boyfriend, pandemic fiancé, almost pandemic husband, (laughs) breaks up. And that's fine. That should have happened. Yes, because again, the the reader knows what what none of her family will tell her, which is that she is too young and not ready for this. And also that they're just not... Well suited to not. There's a term that the kids use. They're not endgame. They're not endgame. They're not endgame. In a a real life way, they're not endgame. They're like... 
you know, they're they're not a long term relationship. This is like a transitional it's, relationship. It's a, they yeah, both yeah. have to pass yeah, through. Yeah. yeah. Um. But then, so here's the spoilers. Here's everyone. Here's spoilers for everyone. So, basically, Ruby calls off the wedding by writing a note to Gabe. Mm-hmm. Gabe. I almost called him Gab. I thought his name was Gab for a second. Anyway, um, Gabe immediately, like immediately, like immediately, because they're in like they're near like I think near Provincetown. Is that what yeah, this is? I think yeah, so it's a it's a beach town. Yeah, anyway, it's a resort. Anyway, um, and Gabe is by. That's important to know. And it's established early on that Gabe is it's bisexual. Established early on. Gabe goes to the beach town to where all the bars and clubs are. And immediately hooks up with an older man who happens to be Ruby's uncle. Yes. Who is wrestling with the fact that he is gay. Yeah. And then also, first of all, all the, I was so upset with this because all of this comes out and Ruby is fine with it. And she's like, oh, well, we can still be friends. If I was engaged to someone <laughs> and I broke up with them and then we hadn't talked face to face about it. No. We yeah. hadn't talked face to face, especially on like a wedding night where it's like, Getting cold feet is, like, such a common, like, thing yes, that people yeah. talk about. And you didn't even clear, you didn't even double check that I wrote the letter. Maybe yeah. I've been kidnapped. Yeah, there's just a note. Maybe says, I've been kidnapped. <laughs> Why does she, she leaves a note saying something like, I can't go through with can't this. Can't go through with this. And then she leaves. Like, maybe she was talking about supper. You don't yeah, know. Who knows? And you immediately go out and hook up with another person? I am not saying, oh, well, we can still be friends. <laughs> you would have much more of a feeling oh, of betrayal. I don't even care that much that it's her uncle because he didn't know that. That's not what factors it. It's just the fact that he did that at all. Yeah. Like, I know that that's to solidify that they, are they not. were not meant to be together because he so quickly turns around on this. I would still be very angry about that. And it would be a thing I would hold until I died with that anger and that grudge. And then, and then, Gabe and the uncle, like, enter a long-term relationship. Yes, that's what surprised me. I thought this was going to be like, okay, I might have to, we might have to bring the levels down a little bit on that. Um, I thought... This was going to be a thing where Gabe and Sam had this one night stand. And it's like, oh, this proves that I wasn't really serious about Ruby. And this proves that you need to figure out your sexuality and you're definitely into guys. And now we can go our separate ways. And that was like a meaningful... A learning experience. It was a learning... It was a little touchstone. It was a little rest stop. Instead, it's a relationship. It's a relationship that then is like accepted into the fold of the family. And how how weird is that for everyone else in the family? For everyone else, but especially Ruby and Gabe and Sam. And Sam is just like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm sleeping with this guy who was previously engaged to my niece. And for Sarah, who was like, this guy was going to be my son-in-law, and, and now, now he's, he's my, my brother? brother's boyfriend? That's a bit too weird. Like, yeah. you can too, suspend too the disbelief yeah. about all these relationships and all this running around, these romantic, these romantic comedic scenarios. Yes. But that is where I draw the line. Yeah. That wouldn't work at all. No. And it's like implied that, like, it's a beautiful thing and no one has reservations about it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. That strained my disbelief too much. But too it's much. like, uh, cause 
that everyone it, is just chill with this. It felt very, well, we have to keep all the characters related in some way. It, yes. You know what it felt like? It felt like when there's a TV show set in a workplace and somebody stops working there, but they find reasons to keep them in the show. <laughs> like, they keep the plot lines intertwined. And you're like, you should let them go. Because yeah. it doesn't make sense for them to be here anymore. I felt like for some reason, Jennifer Weiner was like, well, Gabe still has to be around. And it's like, no, actually. <laughs> he has a contract. He, he actually doesn't have to be around. He can leave. Yeah, he He's can. done his bit and yeah. he can go. He can go and everybody else can, and the family can move on with their lives. Like, I to, mean, me, did, to it, me, that would have been just as insane as if Eli left Sarah and then started dating Gabe's mom that he had a fling with years before. Yes. Like, that's just as crazy to me. Now, this brings up the other plot line at the end of the summer, that the summer place that I had an issue with. Yeah. There's a whole plot line weaving through the whole thing yeah. about how it turns out when Ruby and Gabe get engaged that Eli, who is Ruby's dad, discovers that Gabe is the son of a woman that he had a fling with many, many, yeah, many years that ago. he's pretty sure he had a fling with because she looks familiar, yes. but he's only seen her on FaceTime. And because of this, he starts acting weird as shit. He doesn't tell his wife, and his wife thinks he, like, that, that he's cheating on her. Because he thinks that Gabe might be his son. He thinks his daughter might be about to marry his son. And they're living in their, in their house. And instead of, once he tracks down Gabe's mother, instead of simply asking her... And and coming straight out and and say, you know and and also she doesn't she knows yeah, what he's thinking she knows that what that's what he's that's the thing is okay I understand Eli I can forgive Eli a little bit in terms of not wanting to bring it up because yeah. how do you approach that subject yeah but Eli's mom it's revealed isn't oblivious to that's what he thinks she knows that's what he thinks because she deliberately set him up to yes. think that he was the father of her yes. child because someone else was and it's she was a, basically kind of extorting him for yes, money it's a yeah. whole thing um but. And, and there's this whole thing where when they finally talk to each other face-to-face, -face, Eli and, and Gabe's mother, she was like, I just couldn't face you. I just couldn't tell you the truth. It's like, even if you didn't want to talk to him, just one text that says Gabe's not yours. Yes. And it would have been so fine. And instead you let all these people think that this horrible situation is going yeah, on. Yeah, like, the, I mean, this is this is incest, people. This is not a small thing. I mean, it's not incest, but the fear is that it could have yes. been. Yes, and um, she could have quashed that fear and also stayed out of it because she was ashamed. Yes. Yeah. Just by, like, saying Gabe's not yeah, that's all she needs to do. Oh, send him a text, send him an email. By the way, Gabe's not your son. Because he tried to reach out. Yeah. And yeah. she didn't need... Uh, oh. She shut it down. That, that felt me, very... Con that was contrived very... Contrived is the word. It felt like one of those sitcom plots where everything hinges on people it not just miscommunication, having a... Miscommunication, but for... No, not even miscommunication. Refusal to communicate for no basis. No, no good reason, reason except no to make reason. the plot complicated. Yes. And that... You know, I love Jennifer Weiner. I always will. But that was, to I me, mean, a little bit of a hack She had a lot of plot lines to juggle. She did. And I just think the, the, we have a problem with how one of them was carried out and how one of them ended. Yeah. Percentage-wise, for how much shit goes on in this novel, that's not a bad batting yeah, that's average. Like, that's like 20% of the book, and yeah. the other 80% is fine. But, oh my god. But, yeah, both those plot lines Is it just me. me that would be so upset if that whole Gabe-Sam thing happened? Like, no. That, most people would. I mean... Real talk, you might hold a grudge a few years longer than, than some people because you are a bit of a grudge holder. But, um, you no, know, there, there is no universe in which a family, an extended family of people would be chill with that situation. Yeah. And it's something like a year later that they're back together. A year together later and, the and they're like, like oh. maybe living together. Like, like yeah. Gabe and Sam are like, 
oh no, it's that they're long distance and they fly to visit each other a bunch yeah, or something like yeah, that. But they're definitely still <sighs> together and the whole family is chill with it. It's chill with it. And, and Ruby's there yeah. and she's chill. And I think I took a particular offense to it because Ruby was shown to be a lot like myself. Yes, which was, again, the reason, one of the reasons I recommended yeah. the book to Yeah, you. and then she's okay with this and that <laughs> just felt like a betrayal of... The fact someone was saying I would be okay with that. I, had to, I was so against it. Yeah, no, and I don't think, uh, you know, uh, looking at the book more from the perspective of Sarah, Ruby's stepmom, uh, I don't think any mother would be no. comfortable with that I think situation that with would, her like, own brother. If and you had a brother who did that, you would take that brother aside and say, hey, I don't care how much you like Gabe. You're not, this is not this happening. This is not appropriate. And if it's you good. want it to happen, you're not coming around here anymore. Well, I would at least, you know, I mean, I'd feel, yes, there's a loyalty to both, whatever, I'd feel like you cannot bring him around in no. our family situation. Like, this is going to be too awkward. We can't do yeah. that. But, but of course, she doesn't because, again, Ruby is apparently quite okay with it. And that's, you know. Yeah, it's, it, it's assuming a level of chillness among people. That, it's a suspension of disbelief. Yes. And I could, I could suspend a lot of disbelief for a lot of this novel. But a couple of these things, I was like, I'm not having This that. is where my disbelief not snagged. Happening. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, in summary... In a very different ways, these are both good beach reads. Yes. A beach read can be literary. It can be about well, a person say, with a an obsession with death. A beach read can be anything. A yes. beach read is something you read on the beach. Yes. Yes. And it's something that hopefully you enjoyed reading on the beach. Yes. I thoroughly enjoyed the day and a half I spent much of it in the hammock reading Everyone in This Room Will Someday Be Dead. Yes. If it had not had that sort of gently hopeful, positive ending, I would not have felt it was a good Yeah, beach I think read. it had a a healthy dose of optimism without being this narrative of like, oh, mental illness is just, you can decide to change it. Exactly. You know what I mean? Yes. It doesn't feel like it's in any way belittling or making light of mental it's illness. It's kind of realistic yeah. in that way. It's, you you yeah. can get a little bit better over time. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, a, a beach read can also have wacky couplings and, and misunderstandings and miscommunications. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's Sorry I yelled too. about it. No. And, you know, I don't think Jennifer Weiner is going to be hurt that you, you scream about that because she is doing just fine. Yeah. So. And she probably knows. She knows that that was a weird way to I think she knows that she was pushing the envelope a little bit on that. Just like I think Emily Austin knows that she was intentionally va vague about the place and time and yeah. setting of this book. And authors make the choices they make. And they, they make do. them for a reason. And, and we we're friends. allowed to belittle them for it. We're allowed to have opinions about it. Yes. Because if we didn't have opinions, we wouldn't have a podcast. No. <laughs> So I'm going to release this, I think, at the end of August. Mm -hmm. So there is still time to grab a beach read, even if it's for the Labor Day weekend. Yeah. And it might be one of these. It might Hopefully be. Hopefully it will be. Yeah. We highly recommend them. Yes. Thank you so much for doing this with me. Thank and, you for having me. And for me. feeling so strongly about both books. That's very easy for me. Book swap. That wraps up my book swap conversation with Emma Cole about Everyone in This Room Will Someday Be Dead by Emily Austin and The Summer Place by Jennifer Weiner. As always, if you want to see a list of some of the other books that we talked about uh, during this podcast, because we always touch on lots of books when we're talking about other books, you can go to my website, trinimorgancole.com. Click on the podcast link and it will take you to a page that has links to the show notes for this episode in which I will have listed every book we discussed, uh, including the two main ones that we talked about. Whatever you're reading on or off the beach this summer and whatever your reading plans are for fall, I hope you will join me again next month for another episode. And until then, read a good book and build your shelf esteem. Bye.